0: Podcast.
1: Highway 105 near Lake Conroe is a good place to see a sunset, clouds at twilight. On Monday evening, on this same stretch of road, Danny Ferraro and his wife were on their way to a meeting.
2: We were not looking forward to it because we had an uncertainty about, it, like, okay, well, what is this even about?
1: Perhaps it was about
2: putting them in the right place at the right time to see this. Look at that. And, you know, she looked up was like, wow, that's an angel. He took
1: out his cell phone, took the picture through the windshield as he was driving, posted it on Facebook, and his cell phone photo was taken on a life of its own.
0: We're listening to a 2018 clip from ABC 13, local television news in Houston, Texas. Hello, Texas. Daniel Ferrara took a picture of a huge cloud formation in the shape of an angel, with rays of light reaching out from behind, creating this ethereal, heavenly glow.
2: And I never even dreamed that we would be, you know, that I would even get a, a thousand shares or anything. Now that I reflect on it, it was a moment that I'll probably never forget.
0: The scientific explanation for what Daniel saw is crepuscular rays, columns of light that appear to radiate from the sky and stream through the clouds. We'll post a photo in the show notes of what Daniel Ferrara and his wife saw along the highway that evening. It's pretty cool. You may have seen something similar, though perhaps not in the angel form. They're sometimes called God rays because I guess it looks like a message from heaven. Well, what if I asked you... What do you think heaven is like? I'm sure some of us will have a related picture in mind. Angels floating on clouds with radiating divine glory shining all around. And maybe some harp music in the background. But what is heaven really? If there's life after death, is this heavenly cliché all we've got to look forward to? And what will we be doing floating around in the middle of the air in our see-through form for all eternity? It doesn't sound great. I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. (laughs) Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan's new book, Recovering Our Sanity, How the Fear of God Conquers the Fears That Divide Us, by Michael Horton. Each episode, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, science, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. With the help of people who know what they're talking about, we'll be trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. What happens beyond death is one of those areas, like the idea of a rapture prior to the second coming, where myths have crept into popular Christian thought, which have little connection either with the Bible or with what the church taught throughout its centuries. The modern myth is that when Christians die, their bodies decay once and for all, while their spirits, whatever they are, go eternally into God's presence in heaven. The Bible's claim, though, is that when Christians die, they rest safe in God's presence until they are bodily raised to life to enjoy forever a new creation. So there's life after death, and there's life after life after death. Our first guest points out that the popular conception of heaven is based on the first bit, the temporary state of resting with God in heaven before the resurrection. The the typical cliche of heaven, uh, maybe in the media or even in Christian pop culture is spirits floating on the clouds, playing harp music in the light. What do you make of that impression?
1: Uh, and where did it come from? Sure. Uh, I, I think we probably would likely say that it comes from a notion of the intermediate state, the idea that we are spiritually present to God um, as the the soul and body are separated at death and prior to the return of Christ and the resurrection of the body. So there's an understandable sourcing of it, but as you
0: describe, it, that's Michael Allen, Professor uh, of Systematic uh, Theology at the Reformed Idea Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. He's one of the contributors of a great new book titled Four Views um, of Heaven. Um, you know, we'll be hearing from a couple of other contributors throughout uh, this
1: episode. Uh, you know, I, Michael I, describes I think, his I, view of the afterlife friend, as Hansburg's Heaven on Earth. Out. But as you describe it, of course, uh, that kind of biblical idea that's that's classically heralded by Christians, it doesn't tend to involve things like, um, you know, the harp, for instance. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I do think, I, I take my friend Hans Bursma pointing out, we ought to be careful about mocking it too much because the Bible doesn't say that many things about what we shall do in the hereafter. Mm-hmm. It does mention specifically that we will sing and we will use instruments. So yeah. uh, I, I certainly don't want to mock the idea that that's part of the vision. Well, I'm glad um, there's music. That, that's reassuring. That's
0: right. But I, I guess it's the ethereal cliche, the cliche of it being an ethereal mm-hmm. existence, um, non-corporeal. I'm just curious to know, like, do we we know when that popped up in the church as the dominant motif?
1: Well, so in classical Christianity, you've got the idea where for a time until Christ returns and there is a a final resurrection of the dead, as foretold in texts like John 5, uh, our spirits shall exist with Christ. But that's not the end game. That's not the final goal. That's Uh, That's a small incremental good, but not yet fully glorious step to the new heavens and the new earth, the resurrected body and God coming down and making his home here with us. The Bible actually says very little
0: about this intermediate state, as it's called, the bit between death and resurrection. The Bible is much more focused on bodily resurrection, which is understandable because that's the state that is eternal. But first, a few thoughts about this temporary stage, what happens as soon as we die, according to the Christian tradition. Numerous theologians and Bible teachers over the centuries have taught a doctrine known as soul sleep. This is the idea that those who die with faith in Christ sleep unconscious in the protective care of God until the day of resurrection. Think of it as a really deep, beautiful sleep, perhaps with sweet dreams. In putting forward this view, theologians are trying to do justice to the frequent New Testament insistence that eternal life is resurrection life, and that the period in between death and resurrection is to be thought of as sleep. But soul sleep is not the majority view. Most theologians, East and West, insist that believers who die are consciously at rest as spirits in the presence of God in heaven. But regardless of whether you prefer the soul sleep theory, or the mainstream conscious rest theory, the idea of floating around as spirits in the clouds with God is not eternal life after all. That is a temporary state, assuming temporal language is even appropriate here. So frankly, this intermediate state doesn't matter that much. It certainly isn't the model for eternal life. Our next guest says that the fluffy cliché of heaven is also influenced by earlier views of the
3: afterlife before the rise of Christianity. This cliché developed over a long period of time. As Christianity in the first few centuries tried to make itself understood to the Greco-Roman Empire, um, the world outside of Judaism, they started to use categories from the Greco-Roman world, particularly the philosophy of Plato.
0: That's J. Richard Middleton, though he goes by Richard. He's Professor of Biblical Worldview and Exegesis at Northeastern Seminary. Like Michael, Richard contributed an essay to the Four Views of Heaven book. He calls his view the New Earth perspective. To be honest, there's not a huge difference between Richard's approach and that of Michael Allen, although you might say Richard's view
3: is more earthy, but no less biblical. Now, Plato had this idea that this world is fallible and f- and um, corrupt. We must transcend it to a higher realm. He never called that heaven. It was a realm of rationality, which is immutable ideas. But Christians took this together and took the idea of heaven, which in the Bible is simply the universe be- beyond the earth, uh, which is transcendent from where we are, and they made this into this immaterial realm.
0: So it seems that our picture of the kingdom come derives partly from ancient Greek philosophy. Plato taught that the physical world is a kind of grubby reflection of the ultimate non-physical reality, toward which everything is headed. Incidentally, Buddhism and Hinduism share a similar outlook. Nirvana in Buddhism involves the complete cessation of all matter and sensation as well as consciousness, as we usually define it. Hinduism's moksha, or liberation, is the escape of the soul, the Atman, from the burden of being reborn in this physical world. It sounds a little bit similar to the Hollywood version of heaven, doesn't it? The afterlife there is usually an airy, fairy fourth dimension, with clouds, bright lights, and those harps again. But Westerners forget how earthy the Bible really is, how firm the Bible's insistence that this creation is good. It's not an afterthought, as in pagan philosophy. It's not a deceitful trap, as in much Eastern religion. It's a precious work of an eternal artist. And that idea affects the way the Bible speaks about the afterlife. It's not the abandonment of creation. It's the rescue You could say the resurrection of creation. The kingdom come is not an ethereal place of clouds and ghosts, but a real place of tangible existence. The Bible does, of course, say there are angels in heaven and they are singing. And the Bible even mentions harps. So Revelation 5 says the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Jesus. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense and they sang a new song. The thing is images like this are describing visions of where God and the angels dwell now in the heavens as it were not where we will dwell for all eternity. This episode is about what we'll be doing in eternity. So I think it's important for listeners, perhaps especially listeners who aren't uh, Christian believers, to just uh, just pause on this thought. Uh, y- you are saying, indeed, the Bible does say that what we think of as heaven, the afterlife, is actually a creation. It is actually uh, material.
3: Is that you know? Can we can we yeah. use can we use that word? It's 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 creational. Yes. So. There's this interesting parallel between these two verses in the Bible. In Revelation 21, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It was mm. the first heaven and first earth had passed away. Mm. Now, does that mean that one gets obliterated and there's something totally new put in its place? But go This to, was my so, next question. <laughs> right. So you go to <laughs> 2 Corinthians 5, where the Apostle Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, the old mm. has passed away. The new has come. So if a person becomes a Christian, they are made new, renewed by God's spirit. Does that mean that we're obliterated and a doppelganger is put in our place? No. It's the transformation of the person. But it's meant to be such a radical change that you can say the old is gone, the new has come. And that's the same language used for the new creation.
0: So, yeah, to be clear, you are saying that the kingdom come is this creation we're living in renewed transposed to the eternal melody. Yes, yes. The Bible doesn't envisage us going eternally to heaven at all. The intermediate state might be heavenly and spiritual, but that's just temporary. We don't go to heaven forever. Actually, heaven comes down to earth. Here's the climactic vision of the book of Revelation. It's not about what's happening now in heaven but what happens on earth when heaven descends? Here's the newest member of our Undeceptions team, Social's Sophie.
4: Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will live with them.
0: Thanks, Sophie. The direction is deliberate. The new city comes down out of heaven and lands on a new earth. And it's on earth that God himself will dwell with us. But what does it mean, this idea of a new heaven and a new earth? The Bible speaks of a new heavens and earth, as you just uh, quoted. But what's the point of an earth? if there's a heaven or conversely, what's the point of heaven if there's a new earth? Sure.
1: Well, I mean, the idea being that uh, heaven comes down and God makes his home here, Uh, that earth has become a fully heavenly reality in the sense of God's presence being there. So that for instance, you know, revelation at its conclusion tells of many things that are absent from the glorious state, no sin, no sorrow, no death, Uh, Also, and rather different from the others, no temple. Hmm. And what we observe there is that the temple has become complete and total such that it doesn't have to exist as a a discrete segment of that space. It is the totality of that space, uh, that God is present there in a way that is not to be walled off, not to be curtained off, uh, is to, to allow us to have unhindered communion with him. This is actually a really cool idea. In the Old
0: Testament, the temple was simply God's dwelling place on earth. The very word temple is just the Hebrew bait or house. It's your home, right? And the Old Testament has stacks of rules and rituals about how to approach the house or home of God. And only a few of the holiest people can gain access to the inner rooms. But in the Bible's final vision of heaven on earth, there is no temple for the simple reason that the entire creation has become God's home and he's thrown open the access to all. Is it this creation restored or is it a brand new creation or do we not know?
1: That's a great question. And I think the answer uh, that the Bible suggests is that there's a, an element of both. So many passages will pair language of restoration on the one hand and Utter newness, on the other hand, um, you know, we, we see this in that there are images of new creation, but there's also language of Romans 8 and creation itself crying out uh, for renewal and restoration. And and holding on to those two is important. It's not new to the New Testament either. If you look back, even as far back as Psalm 51, uh, create me a clean heart is mm. language of utter newness and creation. Mm. Uh, renew or restore a right spirit in me is language of rehab mm. and taking things back to the way in which they were. And both are right there in an unembarrassed presentation in the space of one verse from David. And I, I think we take something from each of them. The The language of new creation speaks of how this isn't humanity finally reaching sort of the next stage of our growing up. It, it's not forward progress. It's not eventually we would get there, no. It, it demands nothing less than God coming down and intervening on our behalf. It's, it's utterly of grace. But it is restoration. It's us that are saved. It's this place that is uh, restored.
3: The destiny of humanity in the Bible is actually the culmination of a narrative And this narrative starts with God creating a world that is good, that God wants to indwell with us as a temple. That's what a temple is for. And it goes terribly wrong, but the end, the eschaton, is God coming to remake the world good again, evil being transformed, human beings being redeemed, and we live with God in a new creation. So I think that if you don't understand the beginning, you mess up, the end. If I may um, quote to you from The Princess Bride, there is this line in this movie where um, Inigo Montoya says, when the job goes wrong, you got to go back to the beginning. Well, that's kind of my philosophy here. We've messed up where the story is going, so let's start at the beginning. What's it really all about? Yeah. It's about God so loving the world.
0: There's also a line in that movie that says, uh, I I think that word does not mean what you think it means. (laughs) And we could apply that to heaven. (laughs) I think that word doesn't mean what you think it means. The idea of God dwelling on earth comes straight out of Genesis 2 and its description of the Garden of Eden. In fact, as the vision of Revelation unfolds about this new heaven and earth, references to the Garden of Eden with its rivers and trees come thick and fast. It's obvious this is picture language. We have to let the imagery do its work and spark in us ideas concepts feelings and hopes about what the new creation will be like rather than you know selecting snapshots from the future to carry in our mental pockets until we get there the picture language was never meant to depict exactly the way things will be take the sea for example if you remember that passage from revelation about the new heaven and a new earth also says there will be no sea Now, when uh, the book of Revelation says, um, you know, behold, I saw a new heavens and a new earth, it says, and there will no longer be any sea. Now, Richard, you're talking to someone who grew up by a Sydney beach, and so that doesn't sound very good.
3: And you're talking to a Jamaican who will be back in Runaway Bay, Jamaica in three days. And I'm (laughs) looking forward to walking on that sandy beach barefoot, I tell you, more than anything else, because right now there's a snowstorm outside, (laughs) so I'm looking forward to that. Well, th- there are at least two important ways to think about that statement. There'll no longer be any sea. The first is, in the mythology of the ancient world, the sea is a symbol for the forces of chaos. Imagine standing at the edge of a sea during a hurricane or a tsunami. It's devastating. So the sea becomes a metaphor for that which destroys. And in the book of Revelation, you have the beast coming out of the sea. So, so that there's no more sea means at one level, no more evil. Evil is eradicated. But there's also this other interesting thing in Revelation that the the merchants of the world who control people, they control people through the sea trade. And you find that in the book of Revelation. So if no more sea means God will no longer enable corrupt trade practices in the world that Will oppress people, so it's really about the eradication of evil, it's a metaphor. But I'm uh-huh. looking forward to the ocean and the new creation, all right? Yeah, <laughs> well, same,
0: and ski slopes would be good. Um,
3: <laughs> but if that's
0: a symbol, mm-hmm. a pure metaphor, um, some might say, Well, so is all this stuff about new creation, it's just a metaphor, it won't actually be a new creation. Uh-huh.
3: So if you just go to what is symbolic or metaphorical and say, it's just a metaphor. Hmm. Um, Then you can say that about almost anything. But if you ask about the coherent theology of the Bible, the Bible assumes that God wants to renew the world. And it goes back long before eschatology as a doctrine ever arises, that God cares about this world and God wants us to live in this world whose glory and honor. And so materiality is important. And this is one of the points that a lot of people who study history of religions will say the Jewish Christian tradition is rather unique in the world in affirming the value of materiality, the value of earthly mundane life. And so it's not just about you know, imagery and symbolism. The question always is, what's the point of the imagery or symbolism? The point of a new heaven and a new earth is that the world will be renewed. It doesn't specify how that will be. I have no idea what it will really be like, except that evil will be eradicated. But I don't know what that's gonna be like. I've never lived in a world with no evil. I've never lived a life with no evil within me. So it's gonna be a radically new world. So that's
0: our new home. But what about our bodies? What does the resurrection mean for us in the kingdom come? What will we look like? Who will we be? What will we know? Will we recognise each other? That's after the break. This episode of Undeceptions is sponsored by Zondervan's new book, Recovering Our Sanity, How the Fear of God Conquers the Fears That Divide Us, by Michael Horton ever wondered about the seeming contradiction uh, in the Bible, where on the one hand it tells us to fear God, and on the other it tells us not to be afraid? Michael Horton has contemplated this, and he reckons they're not contradictory at all. In fact, they're part of the one coherent message, and seriously, I buy this. Even as I tell you about this, my own country is dealing with natural disasters, Europe is in an incredible conflict, there's a global pandemic that can now barely make the headlines with all the other scary things that are happening in our world. The world is scary. There's a sense in which fear is justified. But we are not left to our fear, says Horton. In his book, he wants us to see that it is possible to live with a fear of God that in turn drives out all the other fears. So what does it mean to fear God? Who is this God that demands fear? And how could that possibly be a good thing? These are some of the questions Michael Horton answers in his book. You really should go out and get it, Recovering Our Sanity, which you can get from Amazon, of course, or just head to zondervan.com for more information. 15-year-old Zawadi stopped going to school when a deformity in her lower limbs progressed to a point where she just couldn't make the long journey on foot. Zawadi's mother sold part of the family farm in rural Tanzania to get help from traditional healers. But Zawadi continued to deteriorate. When a medical worker from the Kurugwe program saw Zawadi, she was sent to a local hospital for treatment and began receiving physiotherapy. Now Zawadi can walk with crutches and she's started leatherwork classes, learning to make school shoes, which will provide ongoing employment. The Kurugwe Disability Program, supported by Anglican Aid, offers assistance for people in rural Tanzania living with a disability. Services like this are all too rare, but for people like Zawadi, they are life-changing. You can help Anglican Aid support more people like Zawadi by going to anglicanaid.org.au. That's anglicanaid.org.au. Thank you for supporting this organisation I trust. I
1: don't think we've been here before.
2: You had a grandpa named Pop, right? He died when I was about your age. He's very nice.
3: You saw my grandfather? Where did you see him?
2: In heaven.
1: Is this him? Is this the man you saw?
2: No, in heaven everybody's young.
0: That's from the 2014 movie Heaven Is For Real, based on the book of the same name in which four-year-old Colton Burpo claims he visited heaven while having an emergency appendectomy where he almost died on the operating table. You can still believe in heaven, by the way, and be a little bit sceptical of Colton Burpo's claims. A stream of books just like Heaven Is For Real were published following the huge sales of that one. The Washington Post called it Heaven Tourism and described it like this. A person dies, experiences a heavenly experience, then returns to the realm of mortals to spread the good news and reap the profits. Ouch. Regardless of what we think of Colton Burpo's claims, and the claims of others like him, it's understandable that we might want to know what the afterlife, if it exists, is really like. It's a discussion that's been going on for centuries. Take a question like, what age will we be in God's kingdom? If we die at 99, will we have to spend eternity being super old? What about kids? Will they be eternally in the terrible twos? or perhaps worse, teenagers. Thomas Aquinas, for example, the great 13th century theologian, suggested that since Jesus was around 30 when he died, we'll all be around 30 in the resurrection. Peter Lombard, another medieval theologian and the Bishop of Paris in the 11th century, also argued that there would be a multitude of 30 somethings in the resurrection. Now that sounds good to me, though perhaps for some of my listeners, you're thinking, man, that old? Lombard, by the way, also argued that we wouldn't need to eat or drink in heaven. I don't know how that squares with all the Bible passages about feasting in God's kingdom, or Jesus' statement that he wouldn't taste wine again until I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. But plenty of ink has been spilled on this kind of thing. In a way, it is the right question. After all, the Bible speaks of us having a body. Christians have four, you know, pretty long time said stuff like, I believe in the resurrection, of the body and the life everlasting. Uh, I think a few Christians have
1: said that once or twice. Um, Does it really mean a body? Well, I think it plainly really does mean a body, but understanding what sort of body uh, is right where things get really complicated. And of course, we've got a snapshot. It's admittedly not described in all the detail we might want, but it's rather remarkable that the body of Jesus is depicted in a, a range of ways. On the one hand he has a body like what we encounter and what we experience uh, as a Floridian I should point out he eats fish right uh, I, I take it that seafood makes it and All right. uh, it's well this this Sydney man will be happy about that <laughs> there you go we can share that hope um, so he has a he has a digestive system he can eat food. Uh, he can be seen and perceived. He can be touched. In fact, not only that, but he can invite folks to touch wounds, which would have been marked by his his experience of torture and death. Um, and so, there's continuity. At the same time, there's remarkable discontinuity in all sorts of ways. Uh, he, it seems, in Luke 24, is capable of moving through a wall, which seems to be the most likely reading of an admittedly challenging text. Um, he's not perceived immediately by some of his closest disciples, even as they talk to him about him. So it, admittedly, there's some things that are strange. And of course, he's capable of ascending on high out of their sight, as Acts 1 describes it. So we see notions of continuity and discontinuity. And again, I think each discipline our thought about what little, but what really we can know. Uh, And we can know little, but we can know really.
3: Resurrection of the body derives from um, Judaism, and it comes between the Old and New Testaments. You don't really have the doctrine clearly in the Old Testament, but the idea is that God has promised good things for humanity. We have messed it up terribly, and there's a lot of oppression in the world, and given where we are right now with Russia and Ukraine, you see that so clearly. And the resurrection of the body says no matter what people do to you in their unrighteous, evil oppression, God will win out because he will make a new world and you'll get a second chance at it. In a real body, in a real world, with genuine blessing, peace, and shalom, where there will be no more evil. So it is meant to be a revolutionary doctrine, countering the notion of oppression. Oppression is not the last word.
0: Let's press pause. I've got a five-minute Jesus for you. The Apostles' Creed has been a standard summary of Christian belief since its origins in the second century. To this day, it's affirmed by both Roman Catholic and Protestant churches. Now, there are two references in this creed to the afterlife. One relates to Jesus. In the middle stanza, it says, On the third day he rose again from the dead. That's the heart of Easter, the heart of the Christian faith. But the other reference is about believers in general. It comes in the third stanza of the creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Sometimes even long-term churchgoers assume that the reference at the end of the creed to the resurrection of the body reiterates what was said earlier about Jesus' resurrection when it says, on the third day he rose again. But the third stanza of the creed is about believers, not Jesus'. Following the teaching of the New Testament, the Apostles' Creed states that just as on the third day Jesus rose again, so at the end of history, men and women will experience their own resurrection of the body. And it's in this bodily mode that we will enjoy life everlasting. Historically, in other words, the Christian view of the afterlife has always envisaged resurrected bodies in a revived creation, not immortal spirits in an eternal heaven. That is what the kingdom of God is all about, the Lord's reign over creation. Jesus himself frequently spoke of the resurrection, ours, not his. In Luke chapter 14, he said, When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In John chapter 5, he says, Do not be astonished at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear my voice and will come out, some to resurrection life, some to the resurrection of condemnation. Paul taught the same thing. He described Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15. This is an agricultural term, of course, for the initial produce of a coming harvest. So Jesus is the first indication, the inauguration of God's great future harvest when he revives the dead and renews creation. When I first became a Christian, I assumed, I feared, that the Bible taught the ethereal clouds and angels view of heaven. I thought God's kingdom was a bodiless spirit world. But the thing is, I loved the taste, smell, sight, sound and touch of this world. Now I was meant to look forward to losing these five senses and having them replaced by some spiritual sixth sense. And I really wasn't excited about it. Fortunately, someone pointed out to me That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible's kingdom come isn't an ethereal place of clouds and spirits. That's pagan theology, Hindu theology, Hollywood theology. The kingdom come is a new creation with resurrected bodies. It's a place where the frailties and disappointments of this natural order are resolved through an extraordinary act of divine recreation. The resurrection of Jesus is so central to the Christian faith, not just because it marks his life out as a unique historical moment, but because it's the first fruits. In Christ's resurrection, God shows he is willing and able to breathe new life where there is currently death and decay. The resurrection of Jesus is God's tangible guarantee within history that he will do the same for us, and the whole creation at the climax of history. You can press play now. What does the resurrection of the body in a new creation mean for personal identity? You know, for for my, your personal identity. Will we remember this world, uh, recognize each other, that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, it, it certainly seems to be the case. There are a few things that are revealed and then there's a lot where we're left to simply either speculate or to say we don't, we don't have the room or the freedom to speculate with any knowing sense. I, I think there's some basic elements we can identify. Jesus can be recognized. And that seems to suggest that personal identity is such that while it may not be exactly as we experience it now, Um, that nonetheless, uh, individuals can be identified in some way and their history can be experienced and and remembered in some fashion. At the same time, we got to acknowledge and a lot of folks working in what we call disability theology will point this out. There are real questions uh, about things related to suffering, to we could say uh, the experience of trauma uh, what would it be like to know someone and to remember some history that inevitably in small and great ways involves sin and struggle and suffering in this life? In a world where there's no sin, there's there's no shame, there are no tears, there's no death. Um, what it means for us to know things has to be healed in some fashion.
3: There is a whole lot of stuff that we're just not told about the future in the Bible. The way I think of it is, um, eschatology can get you tied up into knots. If you read the Bible, literalistically, taking all the imagery, uh, you know, of beasts and, and horns and all sort of weird stuff. And Christians have got really tied up in knots over this. But if you ask in each case, what's the point of the imagery? The point is that we might conform our lives to the coming expectation of God's kingdom, that we might begin to live today towards that vision. Mm-hmm not accepting the present order of the world as normative because it's fallen, it's corrupt. We must, in some sense, resist the status quo and live towards a vision of wholeness and act differently from the corruption in the world. And so the, for me, that's the point of eschatology. That's the difference it makes. My identity is not precisely who I am as a sociocultural being in this particular world. My identity is in Christ. It is hidden in Christ, to use the language from the New Testament, and it will be revealed at the last day fully but i can now begin to live out my identity in christ
0: but what if after the last day is done and we've made it into heaven or heaven on earth it's actually kind of boring eternity is a really long time just the other day during question time following my sunday sermon someone asked why would i want to go on forever and ever it sounds so tiring
3: um hi are you uh are you are you Hypatia
0: of Alexandria? Yep. How's it hanging? It's hanging really well. Um, I, I gotta say, I was expecting you to be still, you know, ancient Greek. Oh, that's Cheedy from the Netflix series The Good Place, a show about heaven, sort of. The scene comes near the close of the whole series, and so we're about to give you a spoiler. Producer Kaylee convinced me to watch the show, and Buff and I quite liked the five episodes we watched. Anyway, Chidi and Eleanor have apparently finally made it to the good place, the part of the afterlife where all your dreams come true. There are doors to take you to wherever you want to go. Parties are thrown to reflect your personality and desires. You name it, it's yours. Chidi was a philosopher during his life on Earth, and he's just realised that one of his ancient idols, Hypatia of Alexandria the early 5th century mathematician and philosopher, is right there in the good place. He's fanboying all around her, which is perfectly understandable. I'd do the same because she was terrific. One of our Christian sources from the time says she, quote, surpassed all the philosophers of her time. Sadly, it was also a Christian a mob of Christians, actually, who murdered Hypatia. I'll tell that grim story in a future episode on this remarkable woman. Anyway, back to producer Kaylee's favourite show.
4: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, But can I ask you a couple of questions first? Uh, You were a follower of Plotinus who claimed that contemplation of our ultimate reality...
4: Wait, 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 wait. Are you... What's it called? Um, A think-book man? No. A think read book, man. A
0: philosopher, yes.
4: Sorry, it's been so long, my brain is foggy. Listen carefully before I forget how to say this. You gotta help us. We are so screwed.
0: While drinking her bottomless milkshake, which is another perk of The Good Place, Hypatia tells Cheedy that on paper, The Good Place is good, but perfection forever. Makes you a glassy-eyed mush person, she says. Hypatia has been in the good place for 16 centuries. She's bored. She's losing her mind. There's nothing more to do. It's just endless parties and milkshakes and every other thing she's done twice already. It raises the question, what on earth or heaven will we be doing for all eternity? So I put these further questions to Richard Middleton. What about work?
3: Productive work? So I think productive work will be continuing. It's going to be different, of course. It won't be toil. It won't be um, de- you know, denigrated. It won't be dehumanizing. Um, but it will have to be different because what does it mean to have a society of people with innovation, with technology, with, with um, you know new discoveries and so forth, without sin, without evil, or corruption? What would that be like? How can we all participate in meaningful activity in this world? Mm. Will it be paid work? I don't know if we're gonna have an economy mm-hmm. in, in this sense, in the new creation. Again, we don't know questions like that, don't know the answers, but we do know that all that is wrong with the world will get fixed. What about animals, Richard? Animals in the kingdom? I, I'm assuming that there's gonna be animals in the kingdom, but the Bible doesn't specify that exactly. I've had a, you know, I. Some years ago, eight years now, I've written this book on new creation called New Heaven and New Earth. This article is a summary of, in some ways, and I got a lot of emails from people asking about animals in the resurrection, and I have to say, I assume there's going to be animals in the new creation. Uh, Well, then the question is, will there be all animals? Will every animal that ever died be in the new creation? Well, okay, that's a lot of animals. That's millions of years of animals. Um, You know, technically, corals are animals. Will corals be resurrected? You know. I can't answer questions like that. I don't really know.
1: This is one of those areas where we do have certain suggestions. Language of lion and lamb lying down suggests that lion and lamb would be there, (laughs) but also that they would be there in ways that aren't perhaps naturally how we would expect to experience them in the here and now, Um, lion and lamb not being natural bedfellows (laughs) in this life. (laughs) Um, and so, you know, I don't want to make too much of about exactly the kind of specificity we could, we could claim. Does this mean that literally every species as has ever been known will be present? That's where I I don't begin to understand that. Um, but it it certainly does suggest that animal life is a significant part and actually a sign of glory having come of transformation having occurred. Mm. So I expect I'll be able perhaps to be around that alligator without feeling threatened as I presently would. One of the glorious passages about the eternal
0: kingdom is in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, written hundreds of years before Christ. The passage simultaneously recalls the opening line of the Bible, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but it also preempts the final vision of the Bible in Revelation 21 all that stuff about the heavenly city coming down to earth and renewing everything. Now, Isaiah 61 is poetry. It is formal Hebrew poetry. But it gives us every reason to expect joyful activity in the kingdom come. Thanks, Social Sophie.
4: Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed.
3: Hey,
0: just for the record, sorry to interrupt Sophie, but this stuff about dying at a hundred is what's called a litotes, a poetic understatement designed to imply its opposite. So it's not saying there's gonna be death in the new creation. We've already heard back in Isaiah 25 that God will quote, swallow up death forever. The litotes, he who dies at a hundred will be considered a mere youth, conveys the overthrow of death itself. Sorry, Sophie, no more
4: interruptions. No worries. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord They and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear.
0: These verses give us a poetic snapshot of the physicality and activity of the new creation. But there's another aspect of heaven, or the kingdom come, that we haven't touched on. It's strongly emphasized in Catholic thought on heaven, but all forms of Christianity have something to say about it. We will see God. This is known as the beatific vision. The Catholic outlook emphasizes the so-called beatific vision, Mm -hmm. gazing on the beauty of God. Can you explain what this means, and will you perhaps spare a thought for my skeptical listeners who think that sounds interminably boring
2: oh it does if you interpret it in earthly terms uh even the most beautiful work of art bores you after a while That's
0: That's Peter Kreeft, professor of philosophy at Boston College, one of the top-rated research universities in the US. Peter wrote about the Catholic vision of heaven for the book Four Views of Heaven, and and I couldn't resist asking him for a quick phone a friend on the beatific vision.
2: In fact, that's one of the arguments for heaven. Uh, Everything on earth ultimately gets boring, Uh, and nature makes nothing in vain. So that dissatisfaction with earthly beauty and truth and goodness and that desire for something that we can't define and can't attain in this life uh, that is not simply meaningless that has to mean something the beatific vision is not just a vision of the eye but of the soul the whole self sees the whole God Uh, It's the deepest kind of knowledge. In in Scripture, Christ defines eternal life as this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God. And that knowledge is not simply a kind of external seeing of an object, nor is it simply a thinking of a concept. It's a person-to-person relationship. In fact, the word know in the Bible often means sex. God obviously doesn't have a body. Nevertheless, sex is an image of the spiritual marriage that uh, is going to totally fulfill us in heaven. Uh, The uh, Eastern Church calls this theosis, uh, divinization, we actually participate in the divine nature, we're joined in a finite and dependent way to the very nature of God. That's, that's as intimate as it gets.
0: I realise this idea of intimacy with God, our soul gazing on his inner being, might sound a little creepy. Producer Kaylee was indeed weirded out when she heard Peter Kreef talk about this. But it's actually a big deal in the history of Christianity. This seeing God is in the Bible too, of course. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God but it also features heavily in St. Augustine and many other great figures in church history. It reminds us that heaven is not all about us. It's about God. His infinite creativity, intellect, justice and love will be on full display and our gaze will be captivated as when we see something stunningly beautiful. And our hearts will leap for joy. Actually, I spoke to Peter Kreeft for a bit longer than this brief cameo. I asked him about a bunch of Catholic things. What does he reckon proud Protestants like me get wrong? What on earth is purgatory all about? And a bunch of other things. 25 minutes of Catholic intrigue. Make sure you become one of our Undeceivers, a member of Undeceptions Plus, and you'll get this and tons of other bonus content. Just head to undeceptions.com forward slash plus. Anyway, the happy Protestant theologian, Professor Richard Middleton, also had something to say about the beatific vision. So it's a venerable tradition, the beatific vision, the, the, the vision of the beautiful and blessed divine one that satisfies every longing of the soul. Do you have any place
3: for that? So the the, beat, the beatific vision, the notion there's this singular doctrine of seeing God face to face, which is mentioned in the Bible many times, right? The first thing to say about the beatific vision is you can find a lot of references in the New Testament to the fact that God is invisible and can't be seen has never been seen. But you can find a lot of references in, in the Old Testament and a few in the New that we will see God and many people have seen God. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and um, the elders went with Moses to top of Mount Sinai and there they saw God seated on a throne upon a blue um, surface, which is the sky. <laughs> you know, that they're seeing God in heaven. It's, it's visual. So, but what I think the whole notion of seeing God is really a metaphor for coming into the throne room of God. Approaching the king of creation and being able to have eye contact with the king rather than such a you know worm as I and I cannot see you face to face. It's about fellowship, it's about intimacy. So that the pure in heart will see God and the beatitudes means, I think, that we will be intimately related, intimately connected with God. Yet one of the Beatitudes also says, Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And I like to connect those two, that in the new creation, we will have intimacy with God, but we will not just be like standing around a fire singing Kumbaya. We'll be engaging in activity as we inherit the world which we were meant to have to engage in earthly life and all its pursuits. So what's at
0: stake here? Does our view of heaven or the new creation matter here and now? Does how we think about the kingdom come change how we live in this one life we experience now? There are a few criticisms of afterlife theology that are worth airing, like perhaps this Christian focus on the future life dulls us to the realities and joys of this life. So I put this to Richard Middleton and then to Michael Allen. So what's at stake here in in thinking of the kingdom come in this way as opposed to thinking of it as airy-fairy clouds? Like, what does it matter to my life now, what I think of the afterlife?
3: Yeah, there's lots of ways it matters. Let me give you two. Uh, The first is the affirmation of ordinary life. Hmm. So I, as a young person, I went to an undergraduate seminary and did a Bachelor of Theology degree. And I was the only person in my class who was not going to work in the church and be a pastor. And nobody said it explicitly, but I felt like a second-class citizen because I was going to do a secular profession. But in this vision, there are no secular professions and no sacred professions. All of life is sacred. This world is not a secular place. This is a sacred world, a holy world. It can be desecrated by our evil actions, but it can never just secular. So there is an affirmation of all people. You can engage in ordinary activities in this world to the honor and glory of God. That's the first. The second application is almost the opposite, is that, you get a critique of this world. Nothing in this world at the moment lives up fully to God's purposes. And so anything can be called into question and improved. So that's why we're, we're not into nationalism in that sense of patriotism. I mean, I want to be patriotic to my own, my three countries that I'm, I'm a citizen of <laughs> at the moment, but I'm not nationalistic. I don't absolutize that country because even my wonderful country, Jamaica, with this bobsled team and all that stuff, and I love it, and Bob Marley and Usain Bolt, i got critiques of this country and the way it operates in all kinds of ways. So the coming of the kingdom and the new creation calls into question our social formations in this world. They can all be critiqued. They can all be improved. They can all be lamented because we're not there yet.
0: Yes, and the two things you just said, in a way... Seem to dodge a very common criticism uh, of our secular friends that Christians are so heavenly minded they're of no earthly use. Mm-hmm. And you're sort of saying you're affirming on the one hand and critiquing on the other. I guess, you know, some of my listeners might be thinking, um, does all this stuff about the future dull Christians to the problems of the world, mm-hmm. as Marx claimed? Or on the other hand, Does it cause Christians to deny their temporal pleasures, as Nietzsche claimed?
1: Yeah, and I I think Christians ought to go the route of Augustine in the first part of the city of God and not just defend Christianity here, but actually take the fight to the the naturalist, the materialist, the secular person, each in their own ways. Um, If you look at human history, folks who are making a difference are more often than not folks who are heavenly minded. Uh, Precisely because of a resolute hope they're willing to sacrifice themselves and to put themselves on the line, even to the point of death for the sake of others. Uh, It's a profoundly motivating effort and all sorts of things that my secular neighbors would want to celebrate. So many of them come because Christian women and men have out of that living hope given of themselves to lead the cause of human rights, the abolition of slavery, uh, sort of the expansion of health care or of education and so forth. And I would want to press further and say, Augustine and others looking at, at other human communities, cities of man, not of God, would point out, Rome knows that sort of to keep the status quo going, they need to offer spectacles. And uh, the Coliseum's got to exist because people will care about changing the status quo unless they're distracted and entertained. And what do you know, but, but most people who don't have a heavenly hope, they don't wind up actually changing the world all that much. Why? Because they're watching Netflix or they're going about daily entertainments that distract them from the kind of real costly service that would be involved in love and good works. And Christians sure don't do it perfect, but I think our track record on that front actually stands up remarkably well. And our principles have much greater explanatory power for challenging the status quo, for selflessly giving ourselves in service, for trying ultimately to embody the witness of Jesus, who was heavenly minded, Hebrews 12 tells us, you know, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And one way or another, Christian or not, you got to say he did change the world in some fashion. Yeah. Um, And it's precisely because he was fixed on something beyond his last gasping breath there on that Roman cross. I'm pleased that
0: you've kept up the Undeceptions um, average of mentioning Augustine every second episode. So, <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Um, is
1: that on Undeceptions bingo cards it, everywhere? I it suppose? is.
0: It is. Right. Yes. Um, but what about the other side of the ledger, the Nietzschean critique that that this future orientation of Christians causes them to deny
1: the the, the life power of now? The pleasure, yeah, sure. Um, I, I I think the way in which I'd want to respond to that would be to, well, look at it in a couple different ways. One of which would be, Christianity has not uh, sought to somehow suggest that this world is bad, um, that this world is anything but good, albeit fallen. Mm. But that's very different from saying this world is the greatest. Yep. Or the most glorious, and what we see again and again in the pages of Scripture is the argument from good to great, or more specifically, from grace to glory. And so, you know, uh, it can be the picture of marriage, where the love of the couple, the the delight of man and woman together, is going to be a great good, a delight, a pleasure, a, a caring for one another, a cleaving together a real kind of knowing of one another that is, is such an innate good. And yet the Bible again and again says that points to something eschatological, that points to something that's even greater, that's symbolized in marriage, um, but exceeds it hard as that might be for us to fathom uh, that there's this oneness with God. And, and so that doesn't lead me to somehow feel bad about being a married man, about delighting in time with my spouse, uh, about enjoying the, the good things of this world or of that relationship. Uh, but it gives me a, a set of lenses to sort of experience that gratefully and in anticipation of the, the fuller satisfaction yet to come, um, as opposed to the kind of Nietzschean view, which ultimately is, is going to be sort of a a narrative of declining satisfactions, the idea that uh, you're always going to get less of a delight the second time, the third time, the fourth time you experience that, and you have no hope of it ever getting any better, which is why Nietzsche goes aggressive. Yeah, our pleasures can't bear the weight. I regard the brain as a computer
0: which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Ouch. That's Director Mark reading something the physicist Stephen Hawking said in an interview with the UK Guardian. I love what Professor John Lennox of Oxford said in reply, that atheism is a fairy story for people afraid of the light. Michael, what do you say to doubting listeners, sceptical listeners, who think all this heaven stuff is just wishful thinking? I mean, sure, they can see that it's... It's lovely. It probably does help you in life, but it's just wishful thinking.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is where ultimately it hinges on two things. First, uh, whether or not one's convinced by the resurrection claims of Jesus Christ, but secondly, whether or not one also observes that his apostles and disciples plainly realize that has impinging pertinence for their own lives such that they too are willing to go get themselves killed when they could very easily otherwise tap out. It seems to me that on both those fronts, the historical arguments are remarkably overwhelming. They require care. They require study. They they ought not be rushed. Um, But Christians have every reason to enter into that process precisely because it it strikes me, as it has struck so many, uh, that they are remarkably uh, consistent in what we observe. And therefore, I can see, A, that, that Jesus himself selflessly gave himself up to the point of death. Uh, and he did so precisely because he knew he had the promise of, of God raising him from the dead and bringing him into his eternal glory. And his disciples knew right off the bat in the midst of their despair as he addressed them that that too is going to be their story as well, suffering and then glory, and uh, they nonetheless poured into it. And, and the fact that that continues, wave after wave, there it strikes me as is a remarkable
3: apologetic. Everyone lives their life out of some implicit vision of the meaning of the world. It may not be a, a you know a clearly articulated philosophical position. In fact, usually it's not. But it is a vision of the meaning of life. So what's life all about? And let's, let's move away from eschatology per se and the vision of what the end will be. And just say, what's the meaning of life? The Bible tells a story. And all articulation of the meaning of life can be understood in terms of a narrative, a story of meaning that stretches through time that we participate in. We never invent our own meaning. We become part of a larger story. And that story can just be living in a particular society and imbibing the implicit narrative of that society, the meaning of life that you get there. Or you can be part of a conscious group, like say Christians or Jews or other religious traditions, or even some um, philosophical skeptics have a very conscious articulate tradition. And there you're trying to articulate a version of life that's different from the society you live in. Well, I want to say that I have learned by, by indwelling this biblical narrative of god's love for the world and god's elevation of humans to the dignity of being in his image and giving us a perfect um, a purpose in this world that this has made great meaning for my life and everybody needs to reflect on what's the meaning of their life so i know that you cannot argue someone into a position, a worldview, uh, a philosophical position. It doesn't work. I have a degree in philosophy. I know that that doesn't work. I've never thought it worked. All of life is about faith seeking understanding. Use Anselm's term. We start with some commitment to something and we work through life and we try to understand more. And as we understand more, we may change our initial point of view or deepen it. And I found I've changed all kinds of details about my own faith, but ultimately my faith has been deepened because it makes sense of this complex, broken world that I live in and gives me hope for living in it.
0: If you like what we're doing here at Underceptions, then you might be interested in this. Just this season, we've launched Underceptions Plus, which offers exclusive bonus content to members, who we're calling Undeceivers. For a small monthly fee, just $5 Aussie a month, you can unlock uncut interviews, extra question and answer sessions and peeks behind our creative process as we put the shows together. Don't worry, all our regular episodes will remain free and available to everyone. But in Becoming an Undeceiver, you're really helping us to keep the show sustainable and thriving. We'd love to have you with us. It's really easy, so just head to undeceptions.com forward slash plus for more. And while you're there, send us a question, and I'll try and answer it in our upcoming Q&A episode. Next episode, grab your battle axe, get aboard your longship, put on your horned helmet, that probably never existed, we're off to Scandinavia for an extended look at the history, culture, religion and eventual Christian conversion of the Vikings. See ya. Undeceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by Mark Hadley. Editing by Richard Humwy. Social media by Sophie Hawkshaw. And admin by Lindy Leverston. Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan, for making this Undeception possible. Undeceptions is the flagship podcast of Undeceptions.com. Letting the truth out.
2: An Undeceptions podcast.